0: Uh, typically, a theme or uh, something, some overarching truth that he gives us from God's word. And uh, Pastor normally we'll have Brother Yoho in the fall, and Pastor Pearson knew that he was going to be away this weekend, so he we asked him to come earlier this year. And we're glad he was able to come. And if you're in the Sunday school, uh, it was a blessing. He's going through the, uh, giving us the framework, giving us uh, an understanding of the entire New Testament, and he covered. Good portion of that this morning, and and we're going to hear more of that. But I know um, you'll be blessed. I know that we'll all learn from this and grow from this. So it's always a pleasure to have Dr. Yoho with us. Thank you for being here today. I'm going to give you this cordless bro. Thank you, John. Thank you. I'll get you hooked up. Thanks. (laughs) Yes, sir. I need all the help I can get, John. It's a blessing to be with John and Kitty and Noah and be back here at Tidewater. It's great to see you. Being at Tidewater is a highlight of my year. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity. Our new college semester at Tabernacle is starting on September 11th. We just got the new schedules out and uh, we'd love to have you take a course on campus or by live stream or digitally. Uh, Just love to have you be part of that. A Scenic View ties right into the conference today. Going through the New Testament, I brought some extra copies in case you wanted to read more about it. From Babylon into Jerusalem is a Bible handbook that goes into the material a lot more. And also The Loaf and the Cup is a book uh, that put my lectures on New Testament survey at Pensacola Christian into book form. And so these will all reinforce what we're doing at the church today. We have had the privilege of getting a few books off the press since we were here last. We had dedicated uh, Jesus Answers Job on a Wednesday night. Uh, to Pastor Pearson and Kathy and shared that with the church. But we have a few newer books. Um, the Word Made Flesh from Eternity to Nativity is volume one in our series on the life of Christ that we have shared this with you before. But we have volume two now available, Rejoicing in Hope. It's an exposition of the first part of the Christmas story in Luke 1, 5 through 80, concerning the announcement of Jesus' birth and John the Baptist's. Through his poverty gets us right into the heart of the Christmas story, uh, including the uh, birth of Christ in the, in the manger, and the uh, shepherds in the field, and um, we're working on volume four right now, Bethlehem's Treasure, which will, uh, among other things, deal with the coming of the wise men, but love to have you get this. Uh, creation, a new creation, is a monthly devotional. It has a lot of color pictures in it, too, that match the uh, daily devotionals, and uh It deals with the beauty of creation and the even greater beauty of God's new creation. And so these are newer books to the Tidewater family. So we brought some extra copies of those. And we have about 55 different books and booklets on the back table there to the left. Love to have you check them out. Have the plan of salvation on the back so that it can be used as a witnessing tool. And uh, it's a nonprofit missionary ministry. We make the books available on a donation basis. We also have a box of the 55 books under the table there in case somebody would like to get the whole set. We'd be happy to make those available to you. Just see me and we'll tell you how you can can, can get the set and just conveniently take them away in that box. I sometimes tease and say that with my lower back problems, please get the books even if they gain any good and you can't use them because I want to car them back to my storage room at the college. But I was with a dear alumni pastor in Henderson last week, who was prepared to buy an entire set of books just to save my back. Uh, I thought I was so kind. Uh, a dear lady said uh, Sunday night she wanted at the books for a friend, and so she got them, but the pastor was prepared to get that whole box just to save me from taking them back. I've never had that before. Very kind pastor. <laughs> uh, but does, it does help the back not to have as many to carry back. Um, let's pray. Dear Father... Thank you for Tidewater Baptist Church. Thank you for what you're doing here. Thank you for your people. Thank you for the fellowship and the beautiful music today. Thank you so much for Pastor Pearson and Kathy. They mean so much to us. You've given them an amazing ministry together. These, your people, are such a vital part of their ministry and help them greatly. They are a great blessing to your people. We highly esteem them and love for their work's sake and pray your gracious blessing upon them in this church. It is a joy and an honor, Lord, to stand before your people behind this pulpit I do not take it lightly and I pray that you will save me from consuming this opportunity upon my lusts. I pray that you will truly meet with us and give us glorious liberty in the Holy Spirit to exalt Christ and expound his word and gather around it together and be encouraged and go out of here a people more prepared. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of the hearts of these your people Be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, through Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, a new age. scenic view through the New Testament, and now we come to the book of First Corinthians. Oh. Oh, boy. You know, I was thinking, thank you, I, I was thinking some years ago at Pastor Lloyd Black's church in Moncure, I was preaching on the overflowing Christian life, and I had an awkward gesture and knocked the water over. <laughs> Better drink it while I can As we were driving away, my oldest son, Walter, said to me, Dad, well, tonight you really did have your cup overflowing. (laughs) Thank you. I find it interesting that of all the churches in the New Testament, the Church of Corinth was the most gifted church and the most carnal Paul told him in chapter 1 that you are enriched in all utterance and knowledge and come behind in no spiritual gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The most extensive section in the Bible on spiritual gifts by far is 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. They were the most gifted church, but they were also the most carnal, as Paul said to them in chapter 3 Are ye not carnal and walk as men? The most gifted church and the most carnal. You see, beloved, there are the gifts of the Spirit, but there are also the graces of the Spirit. heard about a preacher some years ago who was so dynamic in the pulpit that the people said when he was in the pulpit, he should never get out. But when he got out of the pulpit, he lived such a lousy life that people said he should never get back in. In the Greco-Roman world of Paul's day, the Greeks elevated a man's intellect. What he knew... The Romans worshipped a man's power, what he could do. But Paul emphasized what a man is, his character. And that's why he begins 1 Corinthians 13 this way. And though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. In the light of this, I think that it would be a good thing If each one of us before the Lord came to this righteous and rugged resolve, resolved to consider myself a genuine failure, if ever my success in Christian ministry rises above my own personal sanctification. Resolved to consider myself a genuine failure if ever my success in Christian work ever races ahead of my own personal walk with God. Probably the two most famous chapters in 1 Corinthians are the love chapter, chapter 13, and the resurrection chapter, chapter 15. And I say to you that if 1 Corinthians 13 is a sonnet of love, then Romans 15 is an anthem of hope a hope that maketh not ashamed, and because he lives, I can face tomorrow, and life is worth the living just because he lives. Second Corinthians is probably, Galatians is a close second, I think, probably the most autobiographical of Paul's epistles as he shares his burden for ministry with this dear church that had so many problems. The theme is the integrity of Paul's ministry. And chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, I think, would serve as good theme verses. Giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God. I find it interesting that in Leviticus 4, the personal sin offering of the priest, a young bullock, was the most expensive of personal sin offerings. And I think that's because to whom much is given, much shall be required. You see, the sins of teachers are the teachers of sins. Height of position ever adds two wings to sin. Example and scandal. And that's why back in the 1500s, Queen Elizabeth I well said that a minister owes a triple duty to God, first as a man, second as a a Christian, and third as a minister. Paul begins chapter 3 by saying, there is certainly a place for letters of reference between the churches of the first century, but I am your founding missionary apostle. I've poured so much into your lives. God has been blessing. We've gone through so much together. Is it necessary with these false teachers coming in and trying to undercut my work? Is it necessary that I should bring a letter of reference to you or receive a letter of recommendation from you? Ye are our epistles, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. You are our living letters. What God's done in your life is the greatest evidence that God's called us to you. You see, the changed lives of his converts are the best credentials any missionary can ever have. The spiritual growth of his people are the best credentials any pastor can ever have. I'm reminded of the words that pioneer missionary Robert Moffat, father-in-law to David Livingston, wrote down when a lady asked him to write something in her album. And this great missionary wrote, my album lies in savage breasts where passion reigns and darkness rests without one ray of light. To write the name of Jesus there and point to worlds both bright and fair, and see the pagan bow in prayer, is all my soul's delight. A young man who wasn't real sincere and trying to show off and give the evangelist a hard time, I think, came up to an evangelist and said, how do you account for the hundreds of different religions in the world today? And the evangelist answered, there aren't hundreds of different religions in the world today. There are only two. And the young man was taken back and said, what do you mean? And the evangelist said, in the final analysis, there are only two. One religion says there's something you got to do to go to heaven, and the other religion says something has already been done so you can go to heaven. The first is the religion of works and bondage. The second is the religion of grace and liberty. In Galatians, Paul challenges us in the words of Galatians 5.1, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. In Galatians, Paul calls us from legalism to liberty. Galatians is a great trumpet blast of gospel liberty. In Galatians, Paul, in the great words of Leviticus 25.10, proclaims liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Galatians is the proclamation of emancipation for sinners, written in the blood of Christ. Galatians helped to launch the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther loved Paul's epistle to the Galatians. He commented, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. I have betrothed myself to it. She is my wife. Ephesians is filled with the unsearchable riches of Christ. In fact, Paul could never get over the fact that God called him to preach unto the nations such unsearchable riches. Imagine, God called me. He said in Ephesians 3, 8, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I, imagine, God called me, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Queen Victoria said to a group of young ladies heading to the mission field, young ladies, if God has called you to the mission field, then don't stoop to become the Queen of England. As the surgeon was probing deeper and deeper for the fatal bullet, a soldier in Napoleon's army said to the surgeon, Dr. If you go a little deeper, you will find the emperor. The Lord Jesus Christ meant everything to the man who wrote the book of Philippians. As the sunshine is to the flower, so the Lord Jesus Christ was to his soul. Philippians is a classic statement of single-minded devotion and full-hearted dedication to the person and work of Christ. In fact, you can outline the book that way. In chapter one, Paul said, Christ is my life. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In chapter two, he said, Christ is my mind. Verse five, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. In chapter three, he said, Christ is my goal, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. And then in chapter 4, Paul said, Christ is my strength, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Can you say, the will of Christ is the law of my life? The service of Christ is the business of my life. The presence of Christ is the joy of my life. And the glory of Christ is the crown of my life. Some years ago, Oswald Chambers wrote a devotional book that over time has become a classic. And there's a whole message just in the title of this book. And it ties into Philippians beautifully. The title of the book is my utmost for his highest. What are you trying to add to your life to make yourself more spiritual and to make your life more complete? Horoscopes? Regulations? Deprivations? Emotions? Tongues? Christian, you are complete in Christ. You lack nothing. The theme of Colossians is complete in Christ. As Paul tells them in chapter 2, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. And then in chapter 3, he tells them, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Back in 1305, Dante wrote what is considered a literary classic, The Divine Comedy. And over the portals of his inferno, he has these words inscribed, all hope abandoned, ye that enter here. What a tragic end for the lost. Contrast that with the Christian's blessed hope, even the glorious appearing of the great God and our savior, Jesus Christ. Each one of the five chapters in 1 Thessalonians comes to a close with an announcement of our blessed hope, the rapture of Christ's bride. The passage at the end of chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, is the most famous passage in the Bible on our blessed hope, and it includes these words, For the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I love that old German proverb that says Christians never say goodbye for the last time. Just as the theme of 1 Thessalonians is the rapture, the day of Christ, the theme of 2 Thessalonians is the day of the Lord. And in the context of 2 Thessalonians, that means the tribulation period, the rise of Antichrist, and the visible return of Christ in power and great glory to put down all opposition and make all things come out right. The theme is the day of the Lord. The most famous passage is the passage about the man of sin, the Antichrist, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And I'm here this morning to tell you that the man of sin is no match for the Son of God. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, in one breath, Paul gives us the rise and the demise of the Antichrist through the breath of Christ's lips saying, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Once he spoke a word to a fig tree, and it withered up at the roots and died. Once he spoke a word to howling winds and heaving waves, and instantly the winds hushed and the waves fell still. Once he spoke a word to a legion of demons, bursting out at the seams of a poor man's soul, and they fled. And here, too, there was a great calm. Now, at Armageddon, with that sharp sword proceeding out of his mouth, he but speaks the word, and as it were, the war's over. First Timothy is the first of three books we call the pastorals. I can only give this humorous illustration because I can make the point without embarrassing myself or the church. I so appreciate the pastor and people of this church. But it's not easy to be a pastor, and some churches can be very hard on pastors. I heard about one church that had a real problem. You may have heard about it. The dear pastor got critically ill, and the chairman of the deacons visited him in the hospital Wednesday afternoon. And he said, Pastor, I'm happy to tell you that we had a deacons meeting last night, and uh, I wanted to give you this get well card. I brought up at the meeting that I thought it would be a good idea to give you a well card from the deacons. And I'm happy to tell you the motion passed 4 to 3. <laughs> First Timothy reminds us of the high privilege and the sacred trust of being a pastor of a New Testament local church. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.1, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. He says in 517, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they that labor in the word and doctrine. There are some dear people, none at this church, but there are some dear people that believe the pastor works only one day a week, and on that day too long. I did have homiletics in seminary, but they never dealt much with natural gestures, and that's why it's so clumsy. <laughs> but the ministry is a good work, and to preach and teach your right is labor. Second Timothy warns about the great apostasy or falling away that's going to come into the churches in the latter days of church history. It's getting pretty bad right now. I heard about this man in a large denominational church who came to his pastor and said, Pastor, I've decided to leave this church. And the pastor said, we don't want you to leave. Let's talk about it. Let me know what's wrong. Maybe I can find a way to work this out for you. Please tell me what the problem is. And the man said, gladly. He said, Pastor, I've been sitting under your preaching for the last 10 years. And every time you told me that something in the Bible wasn't history but a myth, or there was a contradiction, or this is wrong, or we don't believe that anymore, whenever you said there was an error in the Bible, I just ripped that page right out of my Bible. Pastor, if I sit under your ministry for just two or three weeks longer, the only thing that's going to be left in my Bible is the two covers. And he left, and that was a good reason to leave. (laughs) The theme of 2 Timothy is the antidote against apostasy. When perilous times should come, what should be our refuge and our response? Paul tells us, for example, in 2 Timothy 3, 13 through 17, that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived throughly furnished unto all good works. I think you could call the theme of Titus Christian cosmetics. (laughs) Paul talks a lot in this short epistle about sound or healthy doctrine, wholesome doctrine, and how that should be translated into good works in our lives. Through our good works, we show how true and beautiful the teachings of Christianity are to those on the outside. In fact, Paul told the slaves, and it's possible that over 50% of the congregations in the first century were made up of slaves, and they had a very hard lot, and it wasn't easy. But he said, for the glory of Jesus Christ, you be the best slaves you can be, and honor Christ where he's put you, and fill your place filled with the Spirit, And when you do that, he says in 2.10, you will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And the word for adorn there, cosmeo, is the word from which we get cosmetics. Or cosmos, the world, the beautifully ordered world that God created. And so Titus talks about Christian cosmetics. So living a beautiful life that people... See Christ in you and want to come to know him too. It has been said that a Christian is somebody who makes it easier for other people to believe in God. Gandhi, the Hindu leader of India, during the last days of the British rule, said very sadly, I would have become a Christian if it hadn't been for Christians. (laughs) Oh, how you and I need to sing that hymn, A New and Afresh, Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. Christian Cosmetics. The way in which Paul sent a runaway slave back to his master, as recorded in Philemon, would pave the way in time for millions more to be set free. The next time you read the book of Hebrews, notice that It begins like a treatise, continues like a sermon, and ends like a letter. And the great theme of Hebrews is Christ, our great high priest. The words priest and priesthood and like words being found 37 times in the book. The great Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane, confessed, if I could only hear Jesus praying for me in the next room. Why, there isn't anything I would dread, and there is nothing that I would not dare do for God. But distance makes no difference. Right now, at this very moment, he is praying for me. How wonderful to realize in the words of Hebrews 7.25, that Jesus, who is the same yesterday and today and forever, ever liveth to make intercession for us. I am told that our Jewish friends will stand before the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, write down their heart's desire on a scrap of paper and stick that paper into one of the cracks on the Wailing Wall, hoping fondly that the prayer of their heart may be granted. May I say to you this morning, we Christians, have a better method. And we read about this better method all through the book of Hebrews, like in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now most of you sitting here today probably think that James was born in Israel. But I'm here to tell you this morning that James was from Missouri. (laughs) The show me statement. He writes in James 2.18, Yea, a man may say, I have work, I have faith, and you have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. I think I got a little tongue-twisty there. Yea, a man may say, I have, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. I got a little tongue-twisty there, sorry. Show me. Show me that you have real faith by the way you live. See, when James says in chapter 2 that faith without works is dead, he is certainly not saying we're saved by works. But he is saying we are saved by a faith that works. (laughs) By the way, James is the earliest book in the New Testament written around A.D. 46. The theme of 1 Peter is suffering as a Christian And we get so much encouragement about how to do that from verse Peter. Like, for example, in chapter 5, verses 7 to 11. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walketh about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith. Knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world, and the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After that, ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The founder of our ministry of tabernacle Dr. Rod Bell senior said there are three things that the liberals don't like about 2nd Peter. And those three things the liberals don't like about 2nd Peter are chapter 1, chapter 2 and chapter 3. 2nd <laughs> Peter like a river of scalding lava minces no words in describing the false teachers who are trying to invade the churches and have no inheritance in Christ whatsoever. Let me just read you a small part of the description. If you'll turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. And this is just a small sample. 2 Peter chapter 2, Verses 12 through 14. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to ride in the daytime, spots they are in blemishes, sporting themselves with their eyes, deceiving. While they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and heart they have, exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. I can see why false teachers don't like that book. <laughs> A man came up to Martin Luther and said, Do you feel saved this morning? And Luther said, I can't say that I do, but I know that I am. <laughs> Dr. Bob Jones Jr. used to say he didn't feel saved until his first cup of coffee in the morning. Sometimes you don't always feel like you should as a Christian, but you can feel a whole lot better when you know you're saved in spite of feelings. (laughs) John was written to give us the signs for faith. First John was written to give us the seals of faith. John was written to give us the signs for faith. John 20, 30, and 31, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these I've selected out of them all. These are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Signs for faith. 1 John was written to give us the seals of faith, as we see in 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, the seals of faith. As you read through 1 John, you can be encouraged as a Christian, as you look for these seals of faith, these tests of life, as Robert Law called them, these evidences of personal salvation. Look for such things as spiritual receptivity, a holy walk, a genuine love for other believers, the felt presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and present tense, faith. Both 2 John and 3 John open with this wonderful expression, love in the truth. But each epistle applies it in a different direction. If you love in the truth, you will not offer hospitality to teachers of error and aid them in their mission. But if you love in the truth, you will offer hospitality to those who are getting out there and giving the word out. Second John says that the helping hand of hospitality must not be extended to emissaries of error. For example, In 2 John, verses 9 to 11, he minces no words about this. 2 John, verses 9 to 11. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed for he that biddeth of him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. But in 3 John, there's a complementary message that the helping hand of hospitality must take in traveling teachers of the truth. Notice what he says in 3 John, verses 7 and 8. Because that for his name's sake they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles, we therefore are to receive such that we might be fellow helpers of the truth. There are four colorful character sketches you can read about in 3 John. It's quite a study. John the Elder, Gaius the Host, Diotrephes the Dictator, and Demetrius the Ambassador. Second John has the fewest verses of any book in the Bible, but 3 John is the shortest book in the Bible, and it's the only triple book. You have double books in the Old Testament, like 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and double books in the New Testament, like 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but 3rd John is the only triple book. As we come to Jude and to its theme verse, verse three, I am reminded that it is not enough for a preacher to expound truth. He must also expose error. And so Jude writes in verse three, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. In one of our college classrooms some years ago, a student came up to me and said, Dr. Yoho, if April showers bring Mayflowers, what do Mayflowers bring? And when I was trying to think of a good answer, he said, Pilgrims! <laughs> i like to ask our students this Bible riddle. How is the march of the Messiah across the centuries? Just the opposite of the month of March. Well, we're told that March comes in like a lion but goes out like a lamb. It comes in with blustery winds but it goes out with gentle breezes which lead to the April showers and the Mayflowers, and yes, if you please, to the pilgrims. <laughs> Christ came the first time as a lamb. But he's coming back as a lion. He came the first time on a donkey, a symbol of gentleness and meekness and humility, offering salvation. But he ain't coming back on a donkey. He's coming back to this whole world on the white war steed of heaven with a sharp sword proceeding out of his mouth. And in righteousness doth he judge and make war. And treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. When he came the first time, he came to deal with sin, but he's coming back to deal with sinners. When he came the first time, he said to sinners, come unto me. But when he comes again, he will say to those sinners who didn't come to him, depart from me. The first time he came, he was the victim. He's coming back as the victor. The first time he came, he was judged, but he's coming back as the judge. The first time he came, he came to establish the grace of God in the hearts of his people, but he is coming back to establish the government of God over all the nations of the world. The first time he came, we crowned him with thorns, but when he comes again, we will crown him with praises. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Revelation dramatically describes how the lamb that was slain is the lion that shall reign. Lamb is Revelation's favorite title for the second person of the Holy Trinity. It's applied to Jesus some 28 times in the book, and when you make a study of the word, I think you'll find that it neatly falls into four categories. In the book of Revelation, we see the lamb, first of all, as the sacrificial victim, as in the phrase, the blood of the lamb. But we also see him as the infuriated judge, as in the phrase, the wrath of the Lamb. We also see him as the center of all of heaven's and creation's worship, as in the phrase, worthy is the Lamb. And we see him as the divine, royal bridegroom of the holy city, as in the phrase, the bride, the Lamb's wife. Have you ever taken a tour of the Biltmore Estate? the biggest house in America built by the Vanderbilts. It's a magnificent mansion nestled amid the Blue Ridge Mountains in Asheville, North Carolina. But evangelist Billy Sunday describes a tour much more exciting and much more excellent and enriching. Let me close this message with the testimony of Billy Sunday and the tour he took within the Bible, the Temple of Christianity. Billy Sunday confessed, 29 years ago with the Holy Spirit as my guide, I entered the wonderful Temple of Christianity. I entered at the portico of Genesis, walked down through the Old Testament art galleries, where the picture of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and Daniel are hung on the wall. I passed into the music room of psalms where the spirit swept the keyboard of nature until it seemed that every reed and pipe of God's great organ responded to the tuneful harp of David, the sweet singer of Israel. I entered into the chamber of Ecclesiastes where the voice of the preacher was heard and the conservatory of Sharon where the lily of the valley's sweet-scented spices filled and perfumed my life. I entered into the business office of Proverbs and then into the observatory room of the prophets, where I saw telescopes of various sizes point at the far-off places, but all concentrated upon the bright and morning star, which is the King of Kings." I caught a vision of his glory from the standpoint of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and passed into the Acts of the Apostles, where the Holy Spirit was doing his work in the formation of the infant church. Then into the correspondence room, where sat Paul, Peter, James, and John, penning their epistles. I stepped into the throne room of Revelation, where towered the glistening peaks. And caught a vision of the king sitting upon his throne in all of his glory. And I cried, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him. Crown him. Crown him. Lord of all. May we bow our heads for just a moment of prayer. And leading into the invitation hymn. As we come to the close of the service, I wish to invite you to take your own personal scenic view of the New Testament and crown the Christ of the New Testament, Lord of all, Brother John.